Hello folks, welcome to another SACPA session. Um, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people in the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationships to the land. Um, SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, I'm very happy to have Shelley Hoover with us. Um, thank you for joining us today. Shelley Hoover studies apiculture and pollination in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Lethbridge. Her research focuses on bee health and management, breeding and nutrition, as well as canola pollination and the effects of environmental change on plant pollinator interactions. Previously, Shelley was the head of the apicultural program for the province of Alberta and has held research associate positions at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand and in British Columbia, both at Vancouver and Beaver Lodge. She completed, she completed her PhD on honeybee worker ovary development, nutrition and behavior at Simon Fraser University. Shelley is also the past president of the Canadian As Association of Professional Apiculturists and the Entomological Society of Alberta. Thanks so much, Shelley, for joining us today. And I very much look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Annalise. And I want to thank Mark as well for the very kind invitation to speak to you um, today. Talking about honeybees is something I'm always happy to do, but especially to this group. So as Annalise said, I'm going to be talking about bees and society and, and what issues are affecting bees. You see them in the media sometimes and how can we help bees and, and what role do they play in, in Alberta in particular and, and in our broader society. So if we could move to the next slide, Annalise. I want to start um, first my presentation, start at the very beginning and say, what is a bee? What is a bee? We think we know, but there's a lot of things that are bees that we don't think of and a lot of things that we might uh, think are bees that are in fact not. So a bee is a winged insect. I think we all know that. They have a head, they have an abdomen, a thorax, six legs, uh, four, four wings, two pairs. Um, so the typical insect body plan. And they're actually uh, more specifically a vegetarian form of a wasp. Wasps, of course, are predators, they eat invertebrate prey, and honeybees instead have evolved to get their protein source from the pollen um, they find in flowers and their carbohydrates from the nectar they find in flowers. But beyond that, there's a whole diverse of diversity of life forms and, and um, body plans and shapes and sizes and life histories among the 16,000 bee species that we have identified globally. And, and that number is probably a lot higher. Those are the just the ones we have names for. Um, some of them are what we typically think of. They're stripy and yellow and black, but some are not. Um, they can be iridescent, jewel-toned green or rainbow or blue. They can be red, they can be black, they can be small, they can be large. Um, the main thing they have in common though visibly is that they're all really hairy and if you look at the picture of the big black face on this slide you'll see a tiny little bee called Perdita minima that's smaller than the eyeball of the other bee that it's on. So these are really tiny creatures and some of them you might not even even notice they're in your yards. Next 
slide, please, we can start talk about what is not a bee. And all of these creatures on this slide are not bees, whereas on the previous slide they all were bees. So in the top row we have a number of flies that uh, are bee or wasp mimics. A lot of flies mimic these bees and wasps because bees and wasps are dangerous, so the flies can avoid predation by looking like bees and wasps. Um, the main way to tell them apart from bees is that flies actually only have one pair of wings. They have two wings and they have those giant enormous eyeballs that almost meet on the top of their head. So they might be yellow and stripy, um, but there are ways you can still tell them from bees. In the middle row of animals, you can see those are all wasps. So they're also yellow and stripy. Um, some of them are black, some of them are iridescent and, and beautiful jewel tones as well. Wasps have a whole diversity uh, range of what they can look like as well. But they're less hairy than bees, their tenny are a little bit different, and they tend to be more elongated than bees. And then in the bottom row, those animals are actually all moths. Some of them might look like bumblebees, um, but they're moths. And one of the ways you can tell bees, generally speaking, is that when they're at rest, a bee will fold her wings one pair on top of the other um, over her back at rest, whereas all these other animals have their wings out when they're resting, uh, making sort of more of a triangular shape. So that's one way you could tell if they um, alight on a flower, for example, you could tell if it's a bee or a wasp. Um, but the main take home is there's a lot of things that are bees that probably aren't what you think a bee looks like, and there's a lot of things that look like what you think a bee should look like that in fact aren't bees. In Alberta, we're really fortunate. We have a large number of bee species. There's uh, about 750 known species in Canada, and over 40% of those occur in Alberta. We have over 320 species of bees in Alberta. And especially in southern Alberta, we're in a bit of a bee biodiversity hotspot where we have almost 100 species that are found only in, in Canada are found only in southern Alberta. And a lot of these occur between Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. And that, that's in part because that's where a lot of people have looked for these animals. Um, but they've also looked there because we know it's a hotspot of biodiversity for bees. And I just want to make the point that um, Honeybees, we have a lot of honeybees in Alberta, but they're an introduced species. We actually have a European species of honeybee that was introduced by Europeans when they came to North America. And so I also want to put a plug-in um, for the Alberta Native Bee Council, which is an organization in Alberta that does a lot of work to educate uh, people about all of these uh, other bee species that we have in Canada. They also do a lot of um, conservation initiatives. They put out bumblebee boxes. They try and um, gain a greater understanding of how the populations of these species are doing and what we can do about it. So if you're interested in some of these other native bee species, I'd encourage you to check out the Alberta Native Bee Council's website. Next slide, please. So, why as people, I mean, aside from the fact that they're truly wonderful, fascinating animals, why do we as people care about bees? And the answer is obvious as the food on your plate. Animal pollinators are required for or enhance the seed set of three quarters of all of our food crops. Uh, there was a very recent paper in scientific literature that came out and said that globally in crops that don't have managed honeybees on them there's a 20 to 50 percent yield deficit due to inadequate pollination whereas on fields with managed honeybees there's no evidence of this so 
by improving the pollination in all of these fields on, on so many crops globally, we can increase yield substantially. Next slide, please. So how do bees do this magic? Well, um, it turns out bees are really hairy. I mentioned this when we talked about what they look like. You can see this bee's even got hair on her eyeballs, for goodness sakes, right? And so the combination of all of this hair and the static charge that's on the bees that they generate just when they're flying around uh, means that pollen just basically jumps on these animals. So the pollen from the flowers just is attracted. And you can tell she's got pollen all over her body, on her antennae, in her mouth, on her legs, everywhere. And so because of this, bees are actually out there flying around making sex happen for plants. And so that's, uh, it turns out, really important for us in terms of where our food comes from. Next slide, please. So when we think about our food, there's a lot of staple crops that actually aren't dependent on animal pollination. They um, use wind pollination, things like rice, uh, oats, wheat, barley, corn, potatoes. These are not dependent on animal pollination. And of course, seafood isn't dependent on animal pollination. Um, so all of these beige foods would still be available to us without the actions of bees. Um, and, you know, they're very important crops in terms of just the amount of food we're able to produce for humanity. Next slide, please. Um, but if you're like me, uh, you really prefer what I call the nutritious and delicious uh, crops. So these are the things pictured in this slide. And if you're a gardener, you're thinking, okay, Shelley, I know how this works. We don't need a bee to produce a carrot, right? That's the root. Um, but you do need a bee to pollinate the flower that produces the seed that you plant to grow the carrot, right? So they're not important to carrot production, they're important in carrot seed production. And the same is true for other crops such as onions. Um, uh, they and, and some of it's not food we eat directly, but like canola oil, it's some, a seed that we crush and then we extract the oil from it. We need bees to produce that. Um, high value crops um, grown in some regions of the world that could really use that income, things like chocolate and coffee, um, these have their yields supplemented by bees. Um, so they, they increase the yield of the crop. Um, the tree fruits and melons and berries, these are really dependent on bees. If they don't receive adequate pollination, we get fruit that's uh, not only less economically valuable, but we also get a lot less of it. And then on the bottom row, they, even things you wouldn't think of that are dependent on bees. So some uh, uh, cotton crops actually have their yield increased by bees. And then, of course, you know, we don't need bees to pollinate cattle um, to produce meat or dairy, but we do need bees to produce the seed that produces the forage crops that these animals eat, right? So things like alfalfa seed production, um, samphoin, clover, these are all bee pollinated crops. So we need bees to produce the seed to grow the crop to feed the cow. Next slide, please. And so all of this uh, to say that we don't need bees for all of our food. We don't need bees for a lot of the staple crops, but we do need bees because they contribute to the yield of crops, which ultimately supply a lot of the calories the protein, the fat, the vitamins that we require for proper nutrition. And we're really fortunate in North America that we don't live in an area where um, a large proportion of our population struggles to be adequately uh, nutritionally, um, to meet our nutritional needs. But in a lot of part of the 
lots of parts of the world that is a real struggle for a significant portion of the population, especially in equatorial regions, parts of Africa. It's really critical that um, pollination is adequate because adequate nutrition is directly linked to the cost of food. If people can't afford food, that's when we see malnourishment. And the cost of food is directly linked to the yield that farmers are able to um, get off their crops. And as yield decreases, the costs rise and malnutrition increases. So just one really simple example of this, if we look at vitamin C, over 98% of vitamin C that comes from crops produced annually, globally, comes from crops that are pollinated uh, by animals. So nutritionally, these are very important crops for people. Next slide, please. So how does this play out in Alberta specifically? So in Alberta, we have three different types of managed bee species that we manage specifically for pollination. Uh, in addition to all of these native species that um, are not only unmanaged, we really don't have a good idea what their populations are doing, where they're living, how they're doing, if they're struggling. In Alberta, we have uh, managed leafcutter bees, and we do have native leafcutter bee species, but the species that is managed is one that was brought over from Europe specifically to pollinate uh, alfalfa. So those are managed to pollinate the alfalfa seed crop as well as the canola seed crop. We also have managed bumblebees, which are primarily used in greenhouses for crops like tomatoes, peppers, uh, the cucurbits. Um, they do use them for field crops in some parts of Canada, um, lowbush blueberry on the east coast, for example. And then we have the honeybees, which are globally the most important managed pollinator. Um, in Alberta, we use them primarily for canola seed production, but also other small markets like uh, pumpkin and hasgap. And then in other parts of the country, they use them for uh, high bush blueberry, low bush blueberry, um, tree fruits, uh, a, a wide variety of crops. And then, of course, we also manage honeybees for hive product production. So honey, wax, pollen, propolis. And these are actually the reasons that they were brought to North America by Europeans, uh, was primarily for wax to make candles so they could have light, uh, as well as the honey production. And it's only uh, now that we're starting to realize that the value that honeybees bring to pollination far exceeds the value of the hive products, economically speaking. And we do have laws that govern uh, bees in Canada and in Alberta, we actually have a specific Bee Act and regulations that govern honeybees. So this um, regulation, uh, it has policies in place to um, sort of manage the interprovincial movement of bees, also disease control. Every beekeeper has to register with the province of Alberta so that if there is a disease outbreak, uh, then the province can take steps to manage that because they know where, they know who has bees. Um, there's also, of course, federal laws by CFIA to govern the import and export of all animals, uh, and that includes bees. So typically how this um, affects us in Canada is that we are an importer of honeybees uh, and an exporter of leafcutter bees. We export leafcutter bees to the United States. Next slide, please. So this graph uh, shows um, by the uh, green line and the leftmost axis, the number of colonies in Canada over the last hundred years, the number of honeybee colonies, and the red line in the right axis is the number of beekeepers over the same time period. And so I wanted to show you this to show you how the number of 
bee colonies is reflective of things that are happening in our society so if we look over the twenty's and thirty's we saw sort of a slow increase in the number excuse me of colonies as well as beekeepers and then world war two hit we saw this dramatic increase in the number of honeybee colonies as well as the number of beekeepers for two reasons one was sugar rationing so people wanted the honey because they couldn't access sugar and second was that wax was also extremely valuable in processes that they needed for the war effort so things like making ammunition belts and some of the processes to make some of the military requirements so we saw this dramatic jump during the war and then after the war ended this really precipitous decline in the number of colonies and beekeepers that were being kept across Canada and it was sort of stable ish after that until sort of the late sixties and early seventies when beekeeping really took off more in western Canada and we saw this dramatic increase in both the number of colonies and the number of beekeepers and then in the late eighties in the United States they got a bee parasite called the varroa mite and we closed our border to imports from the United States and it remains closed we closed our border to imports from the United States and so we saw a drop in the number of colonies especially but also the number of beekeepers because they were no longer able to import stock from the United States and then since about the 50s we've seen something that's reflective of agriculture more broadly and that's consolidation so where it used to be you know the average beekeeper had 10 colonies there was a lot of beekeepers but they didn't have a lot of colonies now we see um, fewer beekeepers with more colonies which is true of farms uh, generally speaking we have fewer larger farms and now it's about a tenfold change we have uh, honey beekeeping operations especially here in southern Alberta we have the largest operations here they can have easily 10,000 colonies and then we have a number of hobbyists who might have one or maybe two or five colonies so it's really um, sort of this bimodal distribution and so the most recent um, development in honeybee keeping has been with the advent of some of the newer crops especially the canola crop with these um, hybrid varieties that have been developed um, we see an increase in the in the call for pollination and that's driven an increase in the number of colonies um, here in southern Alberta especially operations have grown larger so that they can meet this uh, demand so the number of honeybee colonies in Canada is is largely driven by what the people want remember so it's economics next slide please this graph I just wanted to quickly show you across Canada what does the beekeeping landscape look like so you'll the first thing you'll notice is the Maritimes don't have a lot of honeybee colonies I mean they don't have a lot of land area but you know so they don't have a lot of colonies um, Quebec and Ontario Manitoba uh, have between 50 and 100,000 colonies, Saskatchewan 100,000 colonies, and then you get to Alberta and boom, we have close to 300,000 colonies. And that's in part because of the types of crops that we can grow here. We have a long history of clover, although we grow less clover now, but we grow a lot of canola. That's true across the prairies, um, but it's also in part due to that specific canola seed production market. Um, and, and often many years, this is last year's data, but many years we have close to 300,000 uh, honeybee colonies, which is more than the next three largest provinces uh, combined. So Alberta is really a powerhouse of beekeeping. Next slide, please. 
And I mentioned canola, and that's because it, it's a very important economic driver, not only for our province broadly and agriculture specifically, but also in beekeeping. So we, um, Canada actually invented canola, which stands for Canadian oil low acid, because we, we developed these varieties that are low in erucic acid, which makes them better for cooking. Um, I think it changes the smoke point. Um, and these are crops that in their modern incarnation are genetically modified for herbicide resistance. They have a treated seed that's covered with insecticides and fungicides, almost, almost all seed is treated. Um, and in Alberta, we have two different production systems. We have the commodity canola, which is grown on millions of acres across Canada, something like 20 million acres. And then we have seed production, which is really specific to Southern Alberta. This is a Southern Alberta crop. Next slide, please. And so this, this graph or map just shows you uh, where canola is grown in North America. You can see it's primarily in the prairie provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Alberta has sort of the, a very large um, area of our land that's devoted to agriculture. It goes further north than it does in the other prairie provinces. Um, and that orange circle south of Calgary, that's where hybrid canola seed is grown. It's kind of uh, between Lethbridge, Medicine Hat and Brooks in that area. And, and it's irrigated crops, so it's grown on the irrigated acres in southern Alberta specifically because we have the water and we have the sunshine. Next slide, please. So this slide is just a commodity canola field. If you're in Alberta, you've seen a canola field. It's these bright yellow, beautiful fields in July. They're big fields. Um, the scale of agriculture in Alberta is big compared to, um, say, out east. We have very large fields quarter section or 160 acres and commodity fields will often have honeybees on them but that's because the beekeeper wants to make honey not because they've been paid to put their bees on there to pollinate the crop so the stocking rate is low it's you know maybe half a hive per acre and that's reflective of a honey production stocking rate next slide so if we contrast that to seed production um, it's a very different crop we have we're making a hybrid crop so we have male and female lines they're planted in, in different bays and we've got a high honeybee colony stocking rate and we've also introduced leaf cutters into the system so the leaf cutter bees are on the same field as the honeybees we've got two pollinators pulling this crop because we really want these bees to go into the male bays visit a male flower that has pollen and then go to a female fall, uh, flower and deliver that pollen to the female bay. So we need them to go back and forth. Next slide, please. So I mentioned, you know, this, they really, in, it's, you have to look at the whole societal context when you're talking about honeybee health because it really is a global industry. We import, last year we imported over a million dollars in packaged bees, so these are literally boxes of bees that we're bringing in from other countries, primarily Chile, New Zealand and Australia, and that was down really low the last couple years because of COVID. There just aren't flights for the bees to come in, so the beekeepers are having trouble getting enough stock to replace anything that dies over the winter because there just aren't enough of the right type of plane flying these routes. We also import a lot of queens, specifically individual queens. We import over $8 million worth of queens from Malta, the Ukraine, uh, primarily US though, from Hawaii and uh, California. And these are distributed across the country, um, something like 250,000 queens a year. Next slide, please. 
We also import and export honey. So we import actually all, uh, slightly more than we export. We used to be an export market, but we've increased our domestic honey production. I think there's a lot of movement behind this sort of buy local, buy Canadian, buy Albertan. Um, and so we've started eating more of our own honey, but we do uh, import and export uh, roughly the same amount, about 7 million kilograms. We export to over 21 countries. Uh, Japan is our largest market now, followed by the US. And we import from 49 countries. A lot of the imports, though, um, are fall into two categories. One is organic honey, which primarily comes from Brazil. Uh, a second is manuka honey from Australia and New Zealand, which is a really high-value honey. It comes from the same plant as uh, tea tree, manuka is tea tree. Um, and cheap honey from other countries, such as India, which is, um, some of that is used in food production. And then workers, too. We import workers. Uh, we have a lot of foreign agricultural workers, and beekeeping is no exception. There's about 2,000 uh, beekeepers that come to Canada annually from Mexico and Philippines. Uh, a lot of these workers have been coming here for, for decades, and, and a lot of them will bring family members. So um, it's, it's really an a, a ongoing, long-term relationship. Next slide, please. I would be remiss though if uh, I didn't talk about stressors that are affecting bee health and there's a lot of them. Nutrition is one, what are the flowers on the landscape, what are humans doing to the landscape in terms of you know, building cities, changing habitats, uh, climate change, all of these things affect what flowers are out for the bees and not only what flowers are available for bees but when they're available. Um, for honeybees specifically, there's issues with queen failure. Um, we get, we see some of these imported queens don't necessarily do that well. And then of course pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, um, all of these things that we're putting out into the environment have impacts on bees, um, as well as diseases and parasites. I mentioned varroa, which is a, a mite that sucks the hemolymph or, or fat bodies of um, of honeybees specifically, and that is a major, major problem for honeybee keepers and things like uh, management. Honeybees are not native to Canada, so how the beekeeper takes care of them plays a big role in their health. Um, and then weather, we can't control the weather, but obviously it impacts bee health as well. Next slide, please. So I just want to emphasize with this uh, picture that bees, we're keeping honeybees beyond their natural range. So management is key. And this in this picture, you can see the beekeeper has dug the colonies out. This is four colonies. He's dug them out from under the snow, unwrapped the insulation, uh, and they're going to feed them and put in some pest, uh, pest control products, insulate them back up, uh, and this will get them going so that they have large enough populations uh, to, to achieve pollination size by the time uh, canola is blooming. Next slide, please. Um, in terms of pesticides, there's all different effects this can have depending on the product and the mix of products in particular because we do see synergistic effects where, you know, two products individually might not be harmful, but together they can be harmful. Um, we see acute effects, so immediate bee death. We see chronic effects or effects of chronic exposure, uh, where we see impaired immune function in these animals, uh, difficulty with navigation and learning, impaired reproduction, loss of the queen. There's a lot of longer term effects that are harder um, to pinpoint. And then, of course, these products allow us to modify the habitat. So 
Um, if we have monocultures in agricultural areas, that's limiting the time span available to forage, right? So if you apply a herbicide, you kill all the weeds, maybe that um, not only creates more of a monoculture, but uh, maybe those weeds are blooming at a time when the crop wasn't, and so the bees were dependent on those weeds um, for forage after the crop bloomed. So weed management can actually reduce forage uh, for bees. If you look at you know, some of these posters or pictures of weeds, often, very often there's a pollinator on them. So weed is just a, a state of mind, I, I like to say, because um, maybe to some people they don't like the weeds, but to the bees they're a valuable resource. Next slide, please. And pathogens. Pathogens are a very important issue. Um, the, the bee in the center, you can see her wings are damaged, and that's because she has a virus called deformed wing virus. I think as, as general population, we've become a lot more informed. We're all sort of armchair epidemiologists at this point in the pandemic, and we know the impacts that viruses can have. We know the things we need to do to control them, and they apply to animals as well. Um, the thing about virus is, viruses is more than other parasites and pathogens, they can spread among different types of animals, which is why COVID is such a problem, why some of the bird flus and swine flus are such a problem for us, because when they spread among animals, they can become more virulent. And so what we see is that some of these viruses that we find in honeybees also um, can circulate among arthropods in a given area so they can affect other bee species and other pollinators and, and other insects and other animals as well. Um, and bees can also compete, honeybees can also compete for floral resources with some of these native bees. So when we're in bringing honeybees to an area, we always need to think, well, what are the impacts on the native species and should we really be bringing honeybees to this particular area? Uh, next slide, please. So I just, uh, my last two slides, I wanted to end by talking about what uh, we as society members can do to help populations, whether we're talking about honeybees or native bees. Um, the, some of the simple things you can do are to plant flowers and especially trees and shrubs. You know, tree and shrub, you get a lot of flower um, per square foot, right? And they're also um, perennial. So I really encourage people to plant flowering trees and shrubs, um, ones that bees like to visit, ones that bloom all year. So you might have some that bloom early, some that bloom middle of the season, and some that bloom late. So try and have bloom extended across the whole season. Um, you know, I leave my dandelions in my lawn until after they bloom. Maybe you don't want a whole lawn full of dandelions, but you know, don't use a spray to take them out. Dig them out with your screwdriver and dig them out you know, after they've bloomed, but before they set seed. Um, you know, little things like that. Uh, don't use pesticides if you don't absolutely have to. I have like a zero tolerance policy in my own yard. If if a plant gets a pathogen or a pest, it's, it's just gone. I don't bother with sprays. Um, just get rid of it, plant something else. Um, to support beekeepers, it's really important to buy local honey. Buy your honey from an Alberta beekeeper. Um, there's lots of different local uh, markets. You can even buy it in the grocery store. Just look and see um, if, where it's from. Um, provide nesting habitat in your garden. A lot of people miss this one. So some of the smaller bees don't actually travel that far uh, when they're foraging. And so if you don't have nesting habitat, you don't have habitat because they're not going to come to your flowers. Um, they're too far away. So provide nesting habitat and you can do this through having some, just having wild parts to your yard, right? Have some soil that you don't 
uh, cultivate, have some, leave some of the old stems and leaves and debris. Um, you know, I always joke that bumblebee habitat is really easy because you just leave out derelict cars and old mattresses. They love those kinds of like fluffy material. Um, you might not want to do that. Um, and finally, encourage municipalities and counties to provide bee habitat. They can do that in the roadsides. They don't have to be just plain uh, long grass. They can be something that uh, has a flower. And finally, just to direct you to a couple of resources. Uh, the first is the Alberta Native Bee Council. Um, the second is the pollinator.org guides. And the Pollinator Partnership Canada actually has a plant guide for pollinators for our region, the moist mixed grassland uh, ecoregion. I know it doesn't feel moist here, um, but that's what the ecoregion is called. Um, and so it'll give you a, a large number of plants that you can plant uh, for pollinators that will do well in our region. Um, the, the second to last is a native pollinator habitat creation guide put out by Agriculture Canada by Mark Wanick. It's a really good guide to creating habitat. It's sort of more focused on uh, farm level stuff, but a lot of the principles apply even to smaller urban yards. And if you're interested in honeybee keeping, uh, just encourage you to check out some of the resources on uh, the webpage of the Alberta Beekeepers Commission. Uh, and with that, I think we're out of time, so I'll open it up to questions. Excellent. Thank you so much for that presentation. We've got a um, few questions in the queue, so I'm just going to jump right in. Our first question comes from Knut Peterson. Many thanks for addressing this important topic. As I understand it, beekeepers across Canada suff suffered extensive mite damage to their colonies and up to 50% killed this winter. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm hearing those same uh, reports, um, higher than average winter mortality of colonies. Uh, in many provinces across Canada, it seems like the far east and the far west of Canada may have been spared, um, but certainly the prairie provinces, Ontario and Quebec, are reporting high damages and it's still early, I want to stress that. Um, the losses will increase from here on in. We're not done. I mean, Manitoba's facing, what did they call it, the blizzard of the decade. That's not going to be good for the bees either, right? So the longer the winter is, the more stressful. Um, and yes, it does seem like uh, some of that definitely is related to this parasitic mite, Varroa destructor, which originally came from another honeybee species in Asia. And then as we moved honeybees around, they jumped uh, to the European honeybee and spread globally. And they, it's particularly bad because not only do they um, damage the bees directly, but they also transmit these really uh, damaging viruses, which we know can have an impact on bee health. Um, so that's a long way to say, yes, it looks like there is going to be high mortality this year, but we still it's still too early to know exactly how high um, the, the winter losses will be. But certainly I would expect some operations could lose more than half of their bees. Wow. Um, our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Uh, there's a movement in Lethbridge claiming that artificial urban lighting is negatively affecting our bee populations. Is there any scientific evidence that artificial light at night affects bees? So I, I have actually looked into this a little bit and there isn't a lot of evidence that artificial light at night affects bees 
bees. There's not a lot of work on it, but there's not a lot of evidence that it does. And we wouldn't expect that bees would be particularly vulnerable to this type of, uh, of effect from night lights at night uh, uh, for the simple reason that bees are almost exclusively day active creatures. So they're not out forging at night. So any effects that we would see on bees would be indirect effects. So for example, if these lights were affecting other pollinators like moths that are nocturnally active and they affected those moths in a way that affected um, their competition or their relationship with honeybees or with the plants. N lights at night can also affect plant growth and so they could potentially indirect honeybees uh, that way but when you're talking about light pollution uh, specifically from say street lights at night or something like that um, the most the largest effects are going to be on species that are active at night. So, uh, you know, bats, some of the invertebrates like um, the aquatic invertebrates, those big bugs, um, true bugs that you see that go to the lights, um, uh, things like moths, um, some of the migrating birds, those are the types of animals we would expect uh, to see impacted. Um, honeybees are also uh, against bylaws to keep honeybees in the city of Lethbridge. So the city of Lethbridge um, probably would not really uh, mind, would not, they wouldn't really take an argument seriously that it's damaging honeybee populations in the city when honeybees are against bylaw. Um, but we do have other native bee species in Lethbridge, of course, as well. Um, why, why are, why is there a bylaw against honeybees? <laughs> do you know? Um, you know, it's one of those things where lots of cities, as they grew larger, uh, wanted to become more urban. And so they started banning all of these agricultural things from the city. You see this pattern as they grew larger, they ban all these things. They ban urban hens, they ban bees, they ban all, all forms of livestock. And then once they get to a big size, like Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and they're really big, then they start allowing it again. And so I don't, I don't really understand it myself. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to just have native bees in my... And obviously people do keep bees in Lethbridge because I see them in Lethbridge all the time, so... Okay, um, our next question comes from Terry Shillington. Interesting that you refer to bees as animals. I thought they were insects, a different species altogether than animals. Uh, insects, all insects are animals. So animals includes vertebrates like birds and mammals, but it also includes invertebrates, things like slugs, insects, spiders, those are all animals. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Um, what are the effects on, what are the effects of Roundup on bee population? So Roundup is a herbicide. The active in ingredient in that product is glyphosate. Um, and it, it's ubiquitous. If you sample anything from the environment, the odds are you're gonna find some amount of glyphosate. We find it in the water, we find it everywhere. It's sprayed uh, hugely. And, and they're still developing more crop varieties that they can apply even more of this product to. Um, so it's not likely to become any less common is my prediction. Um, there's not a lot of uh, studies on the effects of this product on native bees. There have been studies on honeybees, uh, and we find that honeybees are quite tolerant of large amounts of glyphosate. Um, but I will uh, put two caveats to that. 
Uh, one is that that's, those studies test glyphosate or Roundup alone and not in combination with other products. And we know that if you combine products, sometimes that can overwhelm the detoxification system of bees. And then all of a sudden that product becomes toxic when it isn't on its own. Um, so the combination of glyphosate, a herbicide with, for example, a fungicide might be toxic to bees when Roundup itself isn't. Uh, and the other problem that actually arises for honeybee keepers from products like Roundup is that even if it's not damaging the bees, it can get into the honey. And so we have very strict requirements about uh, what levels of residues are allowed in honey, what's considered food safe, uh, both in Canada as well as, uh, especially if you want to import it to a country or export it to a country like Japan, they have very strict regulations on what's allowed to be in honey and they do test it. And so if glyphosate gets in the honey in levels above what's considered safe, which is a fairly low level, um, then that whole shipment can just be rejected. And sometimes we've had shipments had to turn around from Japan and come back to Canada or um, and go to a different market or just, uh, you know, sometimes if the pesticide levels are too high, you have to dump the honey. Um, so economically, it's a problem uh, in terms of bee health. I, I, it's, it's definitely better than a lot of other products that are sprayed, but um, we don't know what all these products do in synergy when bees are exposed to like, you know, 20 different products in their environment. Hmm. Ian Hurdle has another question. What about false imported honey that is labeled as Canadian? Yeah, honey adulteration and honey labeling are big issues in the beekeeping industry. So they're, they're kind of two separate issues. One is that the label is very confusing. And Canada grade A doesn't mean that it's Canadian honey. You really have to read the label carefully. It's just a grade. Um, you have to read the, read the label carefully to see, does it say 100% Canadian honey? Does it say a blend of Canadian and Brazilian honeys? Or does it have like the name of the beekeeper and tell you where they're from? And that's the safest bet if you want to buy Canadian honey. Um, CFIA has done testing and the honeys that are Canadian honeys are not adulterated. They haven't found adulterated honeys that are actual products of Canada. We have found honeys on store shelves that were adulterated, but they were products of other countries. Um, and they, they can do this in many ways. Um, they can put in other uh, sugar syrups. They can put in, you know, a rice syrup or something and mix it with honey um, so that it does contain honey, but it's not 100% honey. There's also things called honey products, which are actually not honey at all. They just, people, consumers think they're honey. Um, and then they can also, another thing beekeepers can do that they don't do in Canada, but in other countries, they can just put out sugar syrup of some sort, whether it's rice syrup, cane syrup, corn syrup, get the bees to forage on that. And it actually does pass through the bee and they do store it, um, but it's not nectar out of a flower, it's sugar syrup out of a drum. Uh, and so uh, there's various ways to test honey. There's nuclear uh, magnetic resonance. They can look at the pollens in the honey. Um, but there's very sophisticated ways to cheat the system too. So they will transship honey. So if we um, say put a tariff on honey from a particular country, they can transship it through another country. And so we have some uh, countries that are producing way more honey than we know they possibly can um, because of this. And so when these uh, products are, are 
traded on a global market like this, um, you really have to be careful. And the best way for as a consumer is just to buy a product that is in fact made in Canada. Um, uh, you know, for example, Bee Mead is a cooperative that's owned by beekeepers in the prairies. So if you buy Bee Mead honey, um, that's definitely Canadian honey. If you buy it from a beekeeper, that's going to be Canadian honey, and it's not going to be adulterated. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. What can we do to help bees survive climate change? Uh, example, extreme heat last summer and wildfires. Are there specific flowers that attract and help bees? That's a, a really good question, important question. Um, it's also a very complex question. Uh, so it depends if you're talking about honeybees or if you're talking about uh, the native species. If you're talking about honeybees, there are things that you can do to help them survive these heat waves. You can put out water. Colonies, when it's that hot, require a lot of water. Um, they like kind of dirty, salty, runny water. Uh, they don't like the clean, you know, bowl that you put out for them. Uh, they also drown, so you have to make sure there's places for them to safely land. As beekeepers, you can um, actually insulate hives against heat, just like we do against winter. Um, some parts of the interior of BC tried that last summer when we had the heat wave, and they found that the colonies that had insulation over the top, just like styrofoam SM, uh, were much better able to regulate their temperature than ones that were uninsulated. If you're talking about uh, native bee species, the interactions between plants and pollinators with climate change are very complex and not very well understood. Um, there's a couple different ways they can be impacted. One is a, called a phenological mismatch, so the timing stops matching of when the bees are out versus when the flowers are out. So with climate change, sometimes what we see is that uh, organisms that use different cues to start their life cycle, so some use day length, some use heat increments, um, they can uh, change uh, their uh, schedule differently. And so you end up with a mismatch between the animal and the plant that it depends on and the availability of those. We also see changes uh, with climate change to how the plants grow. So we'll see changes in nectar production, pollen production, number of flowers, size of flowers. And so that starts to get into nutritional impacts on bees. It starts to get into which flowers are attractive to bees. Um, so there's a, a whole host of things um, that uh, can happen and it's very complex and it depends on the particular species that are interacting. And so uh, the best things that we can as a society do are um, you know, reduce our reduce climate change, do what we can to reduce climate change, reduce our carbon footprint, all of those things that uh, benefit all of their, our natural world will benefit bees. We can conserve habitat, so conserve as much space as you can so that if, for example, animals need to extend their range north, then they have that uh, area available for them to move into. And uh, just as, you know, individual landowners on your property, try and have flowers available for the entire extended season from the earliest flowers all the way right through to the late, latest flowers. Okay, our next question comes from Leona Jacob. Our next two questions. Um, have you read the novel Bees by Laline Paul? If so, how accurate is this novel regarding bee behavior? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the book. Okay. 
And the next question by Leona, what is your opinion about adding bee houses to one's garden? They seem to be specific to mason bees, which you didn't mention. Where do mason bees fit into the picture? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's, you may have seen them in various stores. I've seen them at Costco. There's these so-called bee hotels or bee houses that are just, um, you know, they can look like little tubes um, or they can look like holes drilled in something. And a lot of the cavity nesters, so bees that nest in holes, will build nests in these uh, products. Um, these species are specific to hole size, so if you want to attract a specific species, you have to have the right hole size. Otherwise, it's best to have a diversity of hole sizes in these um, bee habitats. Uh, you can also put out nest houses for bumblebees, which look a little bit different. It's like a little wooden box, and you put some stuffing inside and, and hope that a, bee will, a queen will um, come and, and build her nest in there. Um, I think it's great to provide Habitat for bees and the people I've talked to have not had tended to have a lot of success with these products um, I don't know if they're not maybe designed for the species Exactly in Lethbridge. I think you'd be better off to experiment with your own You know drill a block of wood with a whole bunch of, of sizes and then see which one worked the best for the bees in your area the other thing you can do is insert paper straws into the tubes and what that does is it make it so you can clean the tube out are really easy. One problem that they have with these products in some areas is that um, they they can really attract uh, parasites and so they really just become parasites factories and so they're not uh, necessarily good on a population uh, level. Um, and mason bees are one of the few other bees besides honeybees and leafcutter bees and bumblebees that are um, sort of bought and sold and marketed to um, gardeners. I think the, the thing to keep in mind there is whether you're buying a species that is uh, natural in your area or whether you're introducing a species. I think generally it's better to find a supplier of bees uh, from your area or try and build up your natural um, populations. And the ways we can do that is, is, you know, pretty simple. Just look where the bees are and what they're doing and, and do more of that. So in my neighborhood, there's this old stone wall, and it's always just full of these agapostamen, those really shiny little green bees that we have here. Um, so, you know, preserve that wall, even if it's falling down, you know, keep it, don't tear it down. Um, if you see a patch of soil where the bees are nesting, don't disturb it. Uh, leave these types of, you know, the, instead of a wood block, leave the, the, the hollow stems in your garden. I think there's lots of things we can do. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Can you comment on killer bees and or murder hornets and any impact on the bees? Yeah, so people love to um, sensationalize the Hymenoptera. I guess killer bees are uh, they're a subspecies or a variety of, of honeybees, the western honeybee, the same species that we have. Um, they hybridized the African subspecies with the European subspecies many years ago, I think it was in the 50s in Brazil, and they've been sort of slowly working their way northward. And this is one of the reasons why we regulate imported bees, honeybees, uh, so carefully to Canada. So we import bees from the US, but you'll notice I mentioned only from Hawaii and California, and it's actually a specific region in California, and we very carefully monitor where Africanized populations exist in the United States, and we don't import genetics 
from those regions. Um, so we don't have uh, these uh, killer bees, um, and we are taking steps as a country, um, CFIA does, to keep them out. Um, they regulate the, what is allowed to come into the country. In terms of murder hornets, this is a introduced uh, wasp, a uh, uh, vespid species. Um, they were found in uh, coastal BC, US, um, sort of right along the border uh, between BC and Washington. We've never found one in Alberta. I think it's very unlikely that they're ever going to establish in Lethbridge because uh, they, they live in forests. Um, so I don't think they're ever going to be a problem here, but certainly uh, where they establish, they are a problem for honeybees because they actually hunt honeybee colonies. So they not only will individually eat, pick off and eat honeybees, um, but they will actually act as a group and kill entire colonies. So they can be a big problem for beekeepers in areas where there's a large population of them. Um, and certainly if you, you know, they nest in the, sometimes in the ground, if you step on one of their nests, um, you're going to get seriously stung. So it's not something we want for the people in our region either, but I also think it's probably pretty unlikely that they'll be established. There have been a number of introductions of vespids through the Port of Vancouver. They know this over many years. Um, and they either catch them or they fail to establish real um, breeding populations. Okay, um, next question comes from Knut Peterson. To make up for the massive bee losses this year, do you think Canada might reconsider their stance on bee imports from the US? There's been a push to reopen the border basically ever since it closed in the late 80s. Um, there's there's a lot of beekeepers who would like to see that border open. Um, there's a few reasons why it's closed. Um, we could argue back and forth whether um, you know how valid those reasons continue to be. Um, but my feeling is that given the speed that government works at, it's not going to happen in any time for to make up for spring losses. If it if it reopens, it will be a long, drawn out, multi year process. Um, the the weight of the need from this spring could be used um, as evidence for why that process should happen, um, but government moves too slowly. It's not going to happen this spring. Um, Ian Hurdle, would Canada be able to provide an indoor winter production of queens? So indoor winter production of queens is very difficult because of the honeybee mating system. And it's actually the mating that's the limiting um, part of queen production in Canada. Uh, we can produce queens before we can produce uh, sexually mature males or drones. And the way honeybees mate is actually, you know, tens of meters up in the air in flight many kilometers from their colony up uh, you know i've seen reports of queens that have flown up to 20 kilometers to mate when they had to um so they don't it's very difficult to mate honeybee colonies naturally under anything other than natural conditions we can artificially inseminate them but it's it's much much too laborious to do on the scale that we need honeybee queens what we can do is mate them in the summer so say you know in july and then overwinter them to be used in the next spring. And there's a lot of research going on on sort of what are the best ways to do that? Where can we do that? Um, how can we do that? How can we um, 
increase the availability of local queens early in the spring. Um, but mating them in the winter, producing them and mating them in, in the winter would be, I think, much more difficult than producing them and mating them in the summer and overwintering them. Okay, Khalid Peterson, can you please talk a bit more about the importance of the numerous species of wild bees on our ecosystems? Yeah, so it's, it's a very difficult thing um, to quantify what exactly the benefits of these species are um, beyond just, you know, ecosystem function and resiliency and, and the inherent value of our native species. Um, if we think about, say, for example, crop pollination, um, they do contribute to crop pollination, but a lot of these species don't fly far enough to, to really cover a whole field at the size of the fields we have in southern Alberta. Um, so their value is more in pollinating some of these natural landscapes where, you know, they can have nests distributed throughout the landscape um, and they can pollinate some of the native um, species. We really see a strong association between native bee species and native flowers and introduced species and introduced flowers. So honeybees, for example, tend to like uh, old world species of plant, uh, whereas uh, a lot of the native bee species have a preference for species uh, that are native to North America. Okay, that was our last question in the queue. Um, before we wrap up session, um, do you have a take-home message for us? Yeah, I guess I guess my take-home message, well, I hope you took home a lot of messages, but um, primarily that uh, we have a diversity of bees in Alberta, the diversity of size and shape and, and color and life history, um, and I think that's very valuable. And honeybees are, are one species among all the bees that we have in Alberta, but they're very important one and so I hope you recognize the interplay between honeybees and our society and, and you know our actions affect honeybees both positively and negatively and if we want to continue to have uh, you know food production and even increase our per acre yields we really have to carefully think about uh, pollination and these ecosystem services as something that's contributing value to our agricultural landscape and to our society. Okay, um, thanks so much for your talk, for your time and your presentation. Um, I certainly really enjoyed it. I think our viewership certainly did as well. Um, I hope that everybody on the, in the live stream will join us next week with Jessica Brandon uh, on the topic of human trafficking, uh, hidden in plain sight. So I hope you'll join us next Thursday for that. Um, and um, once again, thank you very much, Shelley. And um, my pleasure. Yeah, we'll end the stream there. Thanks, folks. <laughs>